Hey folks, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Just so you know, this is our last podcast of this season. So uh, if you don't remember from months past, uh, we, we'll, we're on for usually about four months and then we take a couple of months off and then we start up what we're calling another season. So this is the last episode of season two. Um, then June and July, we'll take a little break. And sometime in August, we will be back with season three of the podcast. And we're wrapping up this season with uh, a return guest, Joey Bruno, such a, uh, a brilliant man. And uh, he's helping us get a little bit more insight into the significance of what happens what happened on Pentecost Sunday in Acts chapter 2. This coming Sunday is Pentecost Sunday, a huge day in the life of the church. Our Empowered series has been building up to uh, this Sunday. And um, there's so much that I wanted to share, um, uh, some of the the detail, the nuanced background to um, all that was going on in that pivotal moment in the history of the church, really the history of the world. Um, but just didn't have time to get all that in there. Uh, but we invited Joey to come and share. He did a great job. So stay tuned for that, and we will see you guys next season. Well, hey, everybody. Uh, I am here with Joey Bruno. And uh, hey, Joey, thanks for joining us. Hey, Aaron. Thanks I- for having me. I'm going to I'm going to assume that because I think this is the second or third time you've been on the podcast and you've taught some classes and been in some videos on the screen. I'm just we're, we'll skip the introduction. I'm going to assume that people know who you are, and if not, just this is somebody we like who we trust and pretty sharp fella. So <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, come say hi if you don't know me. Yeah, yeah, do that. Yeah, 11:30 service most of the time. Yes, right, most of the time. Yeah, yeah. So um, we've been in this series uh, called Empowered, and it's been leading up to Pentecost Sunday, uh, which is this coming Sunday. And we are going to look at Acts chapter 2, and I'm I'm excited to do that. I've been anticipating doing it. I've caught myself, Joey, where uh, when I I read Acts 2, I tend to really get focused on the what, just because the events that happen are so remarkable. It's like, wait... So there was a mighty rushing wind indoors. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. And tongues of fire that were visible. Like I've seen and heard and experienced speaking in tongues. Tongues of fire over their heads. <laughs> like like a theophany to this degree. And I get caught into just... And then they came pouring out and everybody heard their own language. I get caught up in the the mechanics of the data. Like just the, the what of it all. And have a tendency to almost run past or, or not focus enough on the why. Like, this event is significant and loaded with meaning and, and purpose. And, and so I, I had talked to you a little bit about that the, the other day at Vienna. You gave me a chunk of time. And uh, you had a lot, of, a lot of insight, I think, as to what, you know, what's part of what's really significant about the why of what was going on. How can we look beyond just the incredible events of Acts chapter 2 and a bit more into what that might, what that mean for us. So, um, yeah, that's, on on Sunday, when we, on, on Pentecost Sunday, I'm going to get into some of that, but what I'm really just doing is sort of like giving people, I'm like, we're just going to peer into some really interesting stuff for a little bit, but we don't have time to have this more 
open-ended conversation. So, uh, with that in mind, I just kind of want to wind you up here and let you go here, Joey. <laughs> I'd love to hear some of your thoughts. Um, and we're going we're gonna to kind of, I think it'll be pretty pretty wide-ranging conversation, but we're going to talk about the significance of Pentecost, and a little bit about some some of the uh, the number 70 and how significant that is the table of nations and you may have been in church your whole life never even heard the table of nations yeah absolutely (laughs) um so some of that stuff i think there's a lot of insight to be gained so um we're gonna get a little bit nerdy but keep it keep it as accessible as possible that sound all right yeah that sounds great yeah Yeah, and the way you opened and framed it was just perfect because that really is the question here at the end of um verse 12 in Acts 2, as everyone is witnessing this, their their question is, what does this mean? <laughs> really simple. What does this mean? Yes. And so th- th- this, this story at the beginning of, of Acts in chapter 2, it, it's part of this sort of thrust within the whole book that starts off in Jerusalem, and then it goes out to Judea and Samaria, mm-hmm. and then ultimately out to the ends of the world. And so this sort of motion outward to, to go out to all nations, it, it starts here in Acts 2. And so to start with, I'm just going to read Acts 2 verses 1 through 12, Mm -hmm. and then we're going to pull out a few questions, which we'll spend the rest of our kind of time discussing, if that's okay. Love it. So when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. And they saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each of them. And then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in different languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and those in Mesopotamia. And there's a bunch of people, groups that are listed here, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts. And they are all declaring... Uh, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. And then verse 12, they were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. So they they experience this thing that's just, as you described, it's kind of crazy. There's... Yeah. Um, and they're, they're immediately wondering, what does this mean? And so as we look at this, this text, I want to kind of pull out five questions. Um, first, why does Luke want us to know that this is the day of Pentecost? Right. The second thing is, why are they all gathered in one place? Like, like where is this and what's going on with that language? Um, why the wind and the fire? Those are kind of obvious things, I think, right? Yes. Um, why are people speaking in different languages? And then why are these nations mentioned? Mm-hmm. So those, those five things are what we'll, we'll spend the next bit looking at. So, so Luke here, he's going to make, he's going to make a number of direct connections to various things within Israel's story. And he's inviting us to, to meditate on that story. And as we do, we're going to find that, that that story itself is going to hyperlink to another story, which mm-hmm. is going to hyperlink to another story and mm-hmm. so on and so on. And so now as we, as we do this, we need to keep a couple things in mind. Um, the, the, the first thing is, is that like 
all of scripture when whenever we read scripture we need to remember that that scripture is absolutely 100% relevant for us but it wasn't written to us mm-hmm. and that's an important distinction to make whenever we read text we bring assumptions we bring our assumptions mm-hmm. and those assumptions may not necessarily be theirs we have different worldviews and so we want to be really careful not to import our worldview on theirs yeah and that's that's like a constant work yeah absolutely because it's it's i have a well-established groove for the way i think of things and and my worldview and if i'm not intentionally studying scripture and trying to see it through their lenses as opposed to mine i will i mean instantly just slide right back into that perspective yeah absolutely um the the second thing that we got to kind of try to remember is you know most people they already feel like reading most of the Old Testament is just painfully long. <laughs> it's daunting, <laughs> and yeah. uh, it's no, but it's nowhere near as long as it would need to be if the authors were actually trying to tell us everything. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't, and they don't, yeah. which means that the details that they choose within their stories are really intentional. Yeah. Um, these are really carefully crafted narratives and details and word choices and patterns. And, and those are really important to, to begin to recognize. Mm-hmm. And then finally, um, like, like them though, <laughs> we all often want more details than we're maybe given in uh-huh. some of these stories. And, um, and in some cases, more details may have actually been known, um, but may not have necessarily made it into the story itself because it didn't fit the author's immediate purpose. Mm-hmm. And so similarly, um, maybe the original story left maybe gaps that needed to be filled in. And so the, the, the New Testament writers, they sit within a period in history that scholars refer to as Second Temple Judaism. It's this period between basically 516 BC to 200 AD. Mm-hmm. And during that period of time, there's a lot that happens in Israel's history. They're coming back from Babylonian exile, thanks to the Persians. Things get going again back with uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, unfortunately, the Persians, they fall to Alexander the Great, and the Greeks take over. But then he dies, and Israel gets then kind of stuck in the middle of these two warring generals, uh, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. And then there's this massive Jewish revolt in 165 BC. Ultimately, Israel is able to achieve some level of independence for 100 years or so before the Roman general Pompey comes in and captures Jerusalem in 63 BC and then kind of installs his own sort of puppet king there for for a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all that to say, that's like 500 years and at least five major empires worth of change. That's that's a lot. Yeah, we don't have grid for that. No. Yeah. No, we Thankfully. don't. Yeah. Um, and so all of all during that time, those changing of empires at 500 plus years, faithful Jews, they're reflecting on the Torah, the prophets, the writings, the Old Testament. And as they do so, they have some fresh ways of thinking about the scriptures. Um, and just like today when, you know, if you're reading commentaries or or books from the Christian bookstore, you know, those mm-hmm. kinds of things, there tends to be these trends, right? Where mm-hmm. everybody kind of is focusing on the same thing because there's a particular issue that's relevant, right? Yeah. And it was exactly that same same time at various points in Israel's history, certain things, 
certain stories mm-hmm. were more important than others. Mm-hmm. They acquired more focus, not because they're inherently more important, but because mm-hmm. they fit the immediate needs yeah, of the people. Relevant. Right, yeah, they're yeah, relevant. People zeroed in on them. Yeah, sure. exactly. Um, and it's kind of like a, um, and so, so there's these kind of trends that happen and the, the stories that were told before get told again, but with some, some additions and some twists. And it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, um, like bell bottom jeans, you know, they, okay. they kind of emerge in the seventies sort uh-huh. of, right. And they're, they're associated with a certain group of people and a mm-hmm. certain sort of movement at that time and mm-hmm. place. Right. But then you kind of start to see them again, sort of a little uh-huh. bit in the nineties, but then yep. even like today mm-hmm. and, Today, those styles are kind of mixed with other styles that maybe mm-hmm. they weren't in the 70s or the yeah, 90s, you that's know. Right. And so they kind of take on these sort of additions and, and um, some slight variation begins to happen. So all that kind of as a little bit of a, a just things to think about and remember as we try to answer those five questions. Mm-hmm. Why does Luke want us to know that? that this is the day of Pentecost. Mm -hmm. Why are they all gathered into one place? What's up with this wind and fire? Mm -hmm. Uh, What's going on with the the different languages? And then finally, why are the nations here? All right. So you you guys ready to dive into that first one? What's going on here? Why is this Pentecost? Yeah. So in in Acts Acts 2 occurs at or on Pentecost. And this is one of the Jewish festivals, one of the main ones, one of three, um, also kind of known as the Feast of Weeks in the Old Testament. And it's we call it Pentecost because that's Greek for 50, and it comes exactly 50 days after Passover. Mm-hmm. But every year, this, this date, it falls on the same day in Israel's calendar. And as Jews thought about that day in particular, they they realize in the calendar that this is exactly the day when Moses gave his Torah on Sinai. Mm-hmm. So Pentecost then became directly linked to Sinai. When you were yeah. thinking about Pentecost, we're thinking about Sinai because yeah. that's like, it's kind of like the 4th of July for mm-hmm. us. Like that is like, one of the most pivotal moments mm-hmm. in Israel's history. Yeah. And, and to reiterate what you that. said earlier, that the fact that we're told that this is the day of Pentecost is intentional. Yes. He wants us to know. I, I was reading Acts, two, Acts chapter 2 this morning and wishing for more details. Like, give me three more verses right here, man. I'm dying to know. And yet he, in a limited text where he just spends a few verses telling the story, he particularly says it's on this day. Yep. So that matters. That's an important hint. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so if we're so so Luke is uh, is giving us a a place to start. Mm-hmm. And where he wants us to start as we think about what's about to happen is Sinai. Mm-hmm. And so you go over to Exodus 19 where okay, now we're going to talk about Sinai and well what happened on Sinai. This is Exodus 19 verses 16 through 20. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand on the foot of the mountain. And now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire." 
and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a clin, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of a trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai, on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called to Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now we get the same imagery in Exodus 20. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the whole people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let us speak. Don't let God speak to us because we'll die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has, has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So, where Luke wants to start is he's he's reminding us of this sort of theophany, mm-hmm. this language of what it's like when God shows up. Mm-hmm. And that's it's, what a theophany is. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. what a theophany is. It's it's mm-hmm. God showing up. And whenever God shows up, there's things like lightning and thunder, which when we got to think and this dark cloud, we usually just think about that like a thunderstorm, right? Mm-hmm. Which often has wind, uh-huh. right? And there's fire everywhere. And so when we have this sort of language in Acts 2 around fire here, we're automatically supposed to think about this Exodus Sinai theophany. And it's this place where heaven and earth meet, where God's coming down. And that's exactly what happens in the temple too, right? Mm-hmm. It's this place where heaven that's and right. earth connect, where God is present. And so we have these kind of overtones of theophany, of temple, of heaven meeting earth. There's fire everywhere. Fire's tied to God's presence. And so... When, when we have Acts 2, though, when, as we read Acts 2, there, there's fire there, but there's this little detail um, that we need to, to track a little bit further with, with the fire specifically. And then we're mm-hmm. going to get to the tongues of fire because mm-hmm. that's, that's kind of another addition, right? Yes. So when we think about um, Exodus 19 through 20, that if we kind of start there in Israel's Exodus scroll – and we then start thinking about the hyperlinks of that story within Exodus. Mm-hmm. Because that story, that that vision of God as fire, it connects to things that have already happened in the mm-hmm. Exodus story. For example, when Israel came out of Egypt, there was this pillar of fire mm-hmm. that was leading them. And if we go even back a little bit further, remember this whole thing started when Yahweh showed up to a bush in Mo- mm-hmm. to, to Moses, um, and the whole bush was on fire. Mm-hmm. And by the way, he's actually at Sinai there. That burning bush is on Sinai. Oh, yeah. No way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's on Sinai. And so Yahweh's like, hey, I'm going to bring you back to this spot mm-hmm. where this bush is on fire, but it's not going to be just this bush. It's going to be the whole mountain the whole this mountain. time. Yeah. Okay. And then that actually hyperlinks back to uh, another story because – Remember, Moses, he, he, it's not super clear whether he knows kind of the full extent of his identity or not up at that point. Um, he knows – he might know – he knows that he's a Hebrew, but there's lots of different questions about who's your God, mm, who's yeah. your identity growing up in Egypt and those kinds of things. And the very way that Yahweh presents himself – in the bush is that I am the God of your fathers, mm-hmm. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if we take that hyperlink back to 
to the Abraham story in Genesis 15, while Abraham is sitting there in this deep sleep, which only ever gets used as this language of Adam when mm-hmm. Eve is made. He's Abraham's in this deep sleep in Genesis 15, and there's this flaming, fiery pot thing uh-huh. that walks between this pieces and it makes a covenant with Abraham that he will make his descendants as numerous as the stars of the heavens and, and those kinds of things. So there's all these connections backwards in the narrative and then even forwards in the narrative too because this same fire that's on Sinai that was at the burning bush that was walking between the pieces with Abraham is going to dwell in the tabernacle visibly. Mm -hmm. And then Solomon is going to build his temple and he's going to pray and then the fire, the same fire is going to come and fill the whole temple. And then Ezekiel as he's sort of meditating on this and and contemplating Israel's coming exile, he's going to actually see a picture of God as this flamey, fiery thing, mm-hmm. chariot thing, that he's going to leave and abandon that temple. Mm-hmm. And then something really interesting happens because later when Ezra and Nehemiah rebuild their temple, that same scene never happens again. Unlike the tabernacle and unlike the temple, Yahweh in this flaming fire, like the bush or like Sinai, mm-hmm. that never happens with the new temple. Mm-hmm. It's, so there's this deep sense within the intertestamental period that Yahweh actually has never come back here mm-hmm. since that time period. Okay. And so there's this longing that Yahweh would return to his temple and once again dwell with his people. Mm-hmm. And so in Acts, we're actually told that they're all gathered in one place. Mm-hmm. And so what's this place? Well, some scholars have have made good arguments that the place where they're actually standing at this point in the narrative is the Temple Mount. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, the picture then here in Acts 2 is that this theophany is happening and it's happening precisely where Solomon had built his temple and where Yahweh had abandoned it. But wow. now he's back. And yeah. what can that possibly mean? Hmm. So here's what we're going to say up to this point, that there's this, there's this connection between Pentecost and Acts mm-hmm. and Sinai. Yes. And then number two, that there's this connection with fires um, and parallels with Old Testament theophanies. Yeah. Okay. So here's the next question. How did at least some of the Second Temple Jews think about the Sinai theophanies. So when they retold this story, how did they retell it? And how might that influence the way that, for example, Luke, as a good Second Temple Jew, Mm -hmm. is thinking and talking about this story? Well, one of the Targums, and and Targums, this is is probably something that, unless you're kind of familiar with the space like biblical theology it's not something you're just going to know about so uh but but these are basically ancient aramaic commentaries on the old Mm -hmm. testament so just like today we write commentaries and we write them to expound the text because the text is confusing Mm -hmm. right um the the Jews during the second temple period, they did this too. They wrote sure. commentaries um, sure. and they wrote them in kind of what was a little bit more the familiar language. So by then most people are speaking Aramaic or mm-hmm. Greek. They're not speaking Hebrew as much. Um, and so your tar- your targums are just kind of like your everyday commentaries, mm-hmm. right? And th- it's really interesting because one of the, well, a couple of them actually talk about Sinai this way, that when Moses is up there and everything's on fire, 
that there's a word had issued from the mouth of the Holy One, blessed be his name, in the form of sparks or thunderbolts or flames like torches of fire. Mm -hmm. And then it happened, a flame on the right and a tongue of fire on the left would Mm -hmm. fly through the air and return and hover over the heads of the Israelites and then return and incise itself into the tablets. So what the Targums here are saying is they're they're describing this sort of picture of, well, how did Moses, how did he get those tablets, right? Uh Those, those 10 words, God, it says, it says in in Exodus that these were written with the finger of God. Mm -hmm. So what, what did that look like? Well, mm. what the Targums are saying is, is that it's this kind of picture of this fire that's happening. And it's there's these like tongues of fire that end up hovering over the heads of the Israelites and then end up writing words into the the into the actual tablets, into mm-hmm. the stones. And so it's this it's this expansion, mm-hmm. but when they think about Sinai, they're thinking about two things that we see in Acts tongues mm-hmm. and tongues over the heads yeah. of specific people which is which are not things that are directly in exodus but are associated with the sort of way that second temple jews are actually talking about that story mm. there's something that is similar at um qumran so um in the in the 1960s there was these scrolls that were found in the deserts in israel um called the qumran scrolls and these things are so important for for biblical theology um like it's it's amazing that we found them um and one of the the scrolls actually talks when it's talking about the urim and the thum these little sort of uh, i was wondering if you were uh, going to talk about yeah, these these little these, these, these little <laughs> They're they're like kind of stones of divination, really. It's kind of what yeah. they are um, that the high priests would would have um, to, to cast lots. And Qumran talks about there being tongues of fire in mm-hmm. these stones, mm-hmm. um, which is a really weird picture. But it's again this this idea that the living God who actually speaks mm-hmm. is present, mm-hmm. um, and He's present for them in in the the decision that these um, stones create as they're cast. Um, But all of these things are just kind of part of the sort of just everyday stories, I guess you can say, Mm -hmm. of the culture. As they think about the Exodus story and they think about the presence of God, how do they describe it? Well, they describe it with fire and Mm -hmm. thunder and lightning, but sometimes tongues and and even tongues above people's heads or in things. Yeah. So this is just kind of part of the way that the culture expands these stories. So when we read Acts chapter 2, if we're not reading it from the lenses of our own Christian background, we hear tongues of fire that there's like that's completely disconnected from anything we've ever heard of. Right. But maybe not so for the original authors and, and readers. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. The, these these I think are connections that they all would have been kind of familiar with. Yeah, they, they're 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 sitting there and they're trying to understand what this what this means, but they have frameworks already mm-hmm. through which they can understand yeah. what this means. Oh, um, it's interesting too that you know with the urin and the, the urin, urin, urim, uh, 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 urim and thum, thumen. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll go with you. <laughs> the okay. two stones yeah. yes. that the high yes. priest kept in his breastplate. That was a way of like hearing from God and yeah. knowing what do I do. It's like yeah. 
This is, and that's the tongues of fire. That makes sense. Yeah. It's fire representing God and the tongues representing the voice yes. of God. Yeah. And then it's just, maybe you're, I might be jumping ahead, Joey, but I think it's really fascinating that when the tongues of fire appear over people, they begin to prophesy yeah. and speak the truth of God. That's like the word of God doesn't have to come by way of a high priest or their own sort of weird way of casting lots but it's more a more a more direct almost our own our own little theophanies yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. um so so that kind of accounts for i think some of the details that we're seeing in acts but then there's this whole sort of second part in acts that where we start talking about all these different languages yeah and then all these different nations mm-hmm. and so where do those pieces come from so if if we if we still sort of camp on the Exodus story for a moment, okay. and we we still sort of are within the 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 scope of the way that some Second Temple Jews were talking about that story, there's some later traditions which which they're they're it's hard to know how closely these actually relate to, for example, what Luke would be thinking, Mm because the traditions are a little bit later, at least the written form of them. So they may or may not have been around. We don't Mm -hmm. know this for sure. But some of the later rabbis, when they're thinking about this story, they make an interesting connection. And I think at least the connection, even if not the details, but the connection itself is worthy of exploration. Mm -hmm. So as they're thinking about this, they say that, um, one rabbi says that God's voice, as it was uttered, okay, so this is happening like on Sinai when God speaks, mm-hmm. okay, that as hmm. his voice is is being uttered, that it split into 70 voices in 70 language. <laughs> so all the nation should understand. Wow. And there's a similar thing that happens in the Mishnah a little bit later. So the, the, these tablets uh, of the Torah um, at the end of Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy 27, 28, 29, you kind of have this covenant renewal ceremony. Mm-hmm. And there in that setting um, of renewal, where you're still talking about the sort of same thing that came from Sinai. It says that, that the, um, that when they kind of re- write out Torah mm-hmm. um, on this mountain, on the altar, that there's inscribed all the words of the Torah there in 70 languages, all the language of mankind. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of this Jewish retelling, and it's considered, it is, like, again, it's considered a later tradition, but mm-hmm. how are they making this connection? Why are the later Jews, when they're thinking about what's happening, they're mm-hmm. connecting it to two things. They're connecting it to all the nations mm-hmm. and they're connecting it specifically to this 70 tongues. Like mm-hmm. that's a very specific number. Yes. Um, and so where are they getting this, this 70 from? Well, if we go back to, to Sinai again in Exodus 19, how many Jewish elders are on top of Sinai? <laughs> well, your, your sister seven. just came and actually did she, a message on this. She did. Right? She did. Yes, there were 70. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's 70 Jewish elders. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, okay, what, what's the relationship between 70 Jewish elders and 70 tongues of the nations? Because those mm-hmm. things are not one-to-one, right? right. The, the, the elders are they're Jewish elders. They're not mm-hmm. elders that represent all the nations. Right. So, so this bit about 70, we got to kind of, 
mine a little bit of Exodus uh-huh. and, and Genesis for these these numbers and sort of see where where we get these kind of parallels. So if we backtrack in Exodus, again, looking at some of the hyperlinks, we go from, from 70 elders. At the beginning of Exodus, there was another reference to 70, and that's uh, Exodus 1, mm-hmm. 1 through 5. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishkar, uh, uh, and it, it, it will go on. But the the conclusion in verse five is what's important. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. So there's this parallel then between, okay, we have 70 elders and now we have 70 sons of Jacob Mm -hmm. and there's a relationship between them, but we're still not quite to something that seems to be parallel yet to the Parthians, the Medes, the Mesopotamian mm-hmm. peoples that, that Luke is still talking about. Yeah, we got to keep tugging on that. Yeah, thread. we got to keep tugging on it, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> and so where do we have 70 nations? So when we look at Genesis, we follow the hyperlinks back from Exodus, keep going into Genesis. We find that in Genesis 10, which is likely a passage that everybody skipped when they're reading um, <laughs> yeah. is this table of nations. Interesting stories before and yeah, after. Yeah, but yeah. It's, 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 yeah. it's a genealogy and it's a really even weirder than average genealogy because mm-hmm. it's also a kind of like map of all the peoples. Mm-hmm. Um, but what the table of nations is doing in Genesis 10 is it's splitting the world up into 70 nations. Mm-hmm. And the nations listed in Acts 2, 5 through 13, they're not explicitly 70, but they actually cover the same territory. Mm-hmm. They're referencing nations to the north, south, east, and west of Jerusalem, Jerusalem specifically at its center. And Luke actually has 14 of them, which is kind of a it, – it's a multiple of seven. Uh-huh. But – but so there's this kind of like passing maybe allusion to it, but we're uh-huh. still we're still not quite like so one we've to got one. in Genesis 10 the table of nations that represents um, well out of the descendants of Noah the 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 nations or tribes or clans whatever language is correct um, that represented the the nations of the world mm-hmm. um, and then not it doesn't seem to me it. There's any real chance it could be coincidental, but it's not super explicit. But the nations that are listed in Acts chapter 2 sort of correspond to what were the, at that point, the modern day representations of that same geographical area. Is that the, there's at least some, there's some, at least some parallels. We can okay. say that there's some parallels. Gotcha. There's enough reason between like this, the references to the 70 and to the, the nations that are listed that it seems like we're supposed to be thinking here about Genesis 10. Uh-huh. And so if we go and we start thinking about Genesis 10, a little bit closer, smack in the middle of Genesis 10, there's this reference to something else that's going to feel a lot closer to what's going on next too. And in verse 8 of chapter 10 of Genesis, the genealogy gets interrupted and we're introduced to a character. And that character is Nimrod. Mm-hmm. And Nimrod, it's, it's, you know, it's a fun name to say just in general for us, yes. right? <laughs> um, but his, his name literally means we will, we will rebel. Wow. Okay. And yeah. And he's, uh, it it says Nimrod who became a mighty warrior on the earth. And that's really loaded language in Genesis. That's actually connecting back to Genesis six and something that happens there with the sons of God. Mm -hmm. And so he's this mighty warrior 
uh, before the Lord. That is like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Mm-hmm. And and then we're given an important detail that the first centers of his kingdom, which is this, this, by the way, is the very first time that the word kingdom actually shows up in Genesis. Really? Okay. Um, and we're introduced to his kingdom, and his kingdom is Babylon, which meant a lot for any Second Temple Jew in particular because mm-hmm. they had spent years in exile because of them. Mm-hmm. And that this this kingdom includes cities that are in the land of Shinar. Mm-hmm. And that is really important because that's going to then pick up where Genesis 11, 1 will start. It's kind of a link between the two. Okay. And so Genesis 11, 1 starts off with now the whole world was, uh, the language is here, literally one language and one lip. Huh. <laughs> and as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and they settled there. So this, of course, is the beginning of the Tower of Babel story. Mm-hmm. Okay, And so it seems like when we, when we think about Acts, we have definite connections to Sinai. Yes. But then if we follow those connections to Sinai, ultimately that's going to lead us to Genesis 10, mm-hmm. Table of Nations, and then now here seemingly to Babel. Mm-hmm. And so then we want to start to ask the question, okay, are there other connections between what's happening in Acts 2 and with Babel? Mm-hmm. And so as we do that, we'll think a little bit about uh, – f- first we have this – again, this guy Nimrod. He, he's this, this dude who's building Babel. And in all the languages in Genesis 11, they're going to be divided mm-hmm. and Babylon is going to be overthrown. But – Genesis actually doesn't tell us explicitly about how God overthrows Babel. It just says, hey, this is that it says specifically, uh, I think in verse eight, the Lord dispersed them uh, from there over the face of the earth and they left out off the building of the city. And we know that in in some sense that he he did this by confusing the languages, right? right? But the details of exactly what that looked like just aren't there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so some of the second temple Jews um, developed the story and went into a little bit more detail about oh, what okay. happened. And so one text, uh, Jubilees, this is a second temple text. Uh, again, these are not inspired or anything like that. They just kind of mm-hmm. give us uh, insight into the ways that other second temple Jews were talking and thinking about these stories. Right. And so in, in there, in chapter 10, verse 26, it says, and the Lord God sent a great wind upon the tower and mm-hmm. blew it on the earth. Sounds familiar. And Josephus, he is a first century uh, Jewish historian, and his Antiquities, uh, 118, says that when all the men were of one language, some of them built a high tower, as if they were thereby to ascend up to heaven. But the gods sent storms of wind, and they overthrew the tower and gave everyone his peculiar language. And for this reason, it was the city was called Babylon. Mm -hmm. And so it's picking up this... um, Genesis does this as well, this kind of uh, ironic twist on this word Babel because mm-hmm. Babel, uh, Baal, in, uh, in uh, I think it's Akkadian, it means the gates of the gods, the gate of the oh. gods. It's this place where uh, it's this idea of kind of an anti-Eden. So Eden mm-hmm. in Genesis, we kind of tend to think about that as maybe this like flat garden, but it's actually supposed to be thought about as this kind of cosmic mountain. Okay. Okay. It's, it's and so when they're mm-hmm. building Babel, which is it's a tower, it's a mountain. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're they're building this kind of anti Eden, mm-hmm. and the picture in Genesis eleven is kind of twofold. It's number one, if 
if you think about Eden as this high place, as this mountain, and then they're kicked out of the mountain, mm-hmm. okay, and they're kicked off it, what do you have to build to get back into it? Well, you, mm-hmm. conceptually, you got to build another mountain mm-hmm. to get back to it. So, hmm. so that's kind of part of the concept is we're, we're sort of building this place to, to get back into Eden and sort of storm the tree of life, if you will. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that, that's part of it. The other part of it is coming off the heels of the flood narrative. You got to think about, mm-hmm. okay, flood, you cover water, right? Mm-hmm. Like water covers everything. Whenever there's a flood, where does everybody go? High to ground. a high, high ground, yeah. exactly. And so this is a, an act of defiance in that even if God floods the whole world again, you can't get us here. they can't get us here. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah. so... <laughs> So the way that God deals with this whole thing, though, according to Jubilees and, and Josephus and the way that kind of, again, it's in the air, the way that the Jews are kind of thinking about it this time is that there's this wind. And mm. this wind is going to be this thing that both brings Babel down and mm-hmm. then ultimately scatters the people everywhere yeah. too, right? And so Acts 2 is picking up on this language yeah. from Genesis 11, and there's some direct linguistic uh, connection. So in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, which is the, the version that, that most of the New Testament writers are actually using, mm-hmm. but the, the words for confusion in Acts 2 and uh, Genesis 11, it's the same words. Huh. So in both cases, there's this... There, there's this event that happens that results in confusion, and in both cases, there's wind involved mm-hmm. in it. And so there's this kind of parallel here that's happening with um, with the treatment of the nations in some way. Mm-hmm. But there's important differences as, as well. And so what, what it seems like Luke is trying to do in, in Acts 2 is that he's combining all of these things together in his narrative of Pentecost. And he's inviting us to think about the patterns that he's introducing um, and how those patterns relate to the Sinai story mm-hmm. and the Babel story. Um, another sort of slight tangent that's kind of interesting is the – if you've maybe come from like a high church tradition, like mm-hmm. an Anglican tradition or something like that, there's there's a, a lectionary that's kind of mm-hmm. part of the church calendar. So every week there are certain passages that you're supposed to read and that and you do this every year as part of the rhythm mm-hmm. of the calendar year. Well, the Jews have this exact same thing. They okay. have their kind of version of a lectionary. And so every year at different points uh, – in, in the calendar, you're reading specific passages from the Torah and elsewhere. And what's really interesting is we, we don't know, again, how far back this goes. We don't know okay. for fact that this was that this same tradition happened um, in the first century. But it is interesting that the Jewish lectionary reading for this particular day is no Genesis way. 11. No way. Yeah. And so <laughs> – so it's just kind of an interesting sort of pattern there too. Yeah, so, that's wild. Yeah. So yeah. When, when we're thinking about all these Sinai patterns and, and hyperlinks, Acts 2, it's this, it's this new theophany. Yahweh is mm-hmm. returning to his temple. The prophets like Ezekiel had said that this was going to happen. And when it happened, there was going to be this new covenant and this wind would bring these dry bones back to life mm-hmm. in Exodus or in Ezekiel 36 and 37. And that Israel who had been dispersed throughout 
all the nations in the Babylon exile would be regathered. And similarly within the Babel story that there's these 70 nations that are divided and their language is confused. And now they are united again. And there's this drive in Luke's and Luke and Acts to bring all mm-hmm. the nations under the lordship of Jesus as king. Mm-hmm. And this is a kind of, it's a redemption of Babel. But, but note here, what's really important actually is that there's still diversity yes. within the kingdom of God. There's still all these different peoples. And this actually goes back to a, an important detail actually in the Babel story. Because remember in Genesis 11, 1, how it started that all the people were one lip. Yeah, kind of, one language, one lip. Yeah, and that weird. sounds as weird yep. in Hebrew as it does in English. Okay. Um, and, but what the meaning of this seems to be is it's not so much talking about uh, language. I mean, that's that's part of it, but it's about one way of thought, too. They're, oh, they're so united they're like, in they're purpose. Like a cultural monolith. Almost. Yeah, yeah. So you kind of okay. th- kind of think about like. Um, Kind of like what the Greeks and the Romans tried to do later, as they would like conquer different peoples. That you got to bring that good, that Hellenized way of mm-hmm. life mm-hmm. to to all of these different places. Everybody's got to learn to kind of speak Greek. Mm-hmm. You have to then take on all the Greek customs. Like we got to build amphitheaters everywhere, and mm-hmm. and because you, you have to unite the whole kingdom, not just in terms of like having one sort of shared language. Everybody had other languages too. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was this kind of common way of thinking about it, this unity and purpose. Now in Babel, this is really bad because this unity, like the very foundation of this kingdom that mm-hmm. everyone is in agreement with is an anti-Eden. Yeah. It's, it's trying to, to literally storm the gates of heaven. Yeah. Um, and, but, but, but now there's this sort of shift that's happening here in, in the Acts story mm-hmm. in that those nations that had gone sideways, that had tried to rebel as this unified purpose, and then as a result have been scattered, they've got a unified purpose again now. Mm. But unlike this pattern of anti-Eden being their unified purpose, now they uniformly share allegiance to Jesus. Yeah. And so it's this kind of upside down sort of twisting of things that, that begins to happen. Yeah. So they find their unity, but they keep their diversity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Hmm. And and now this brings us to kind of a, a little bit of a, a interesting manuscript variant kind of thing that happens. Okay. Um, so in some of the manuscripts, wherever you have these references to the table of nations, whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, sometimes it's 70 and mm-hmm. sometimes it's 72. Mm-hmm. And the reason for this is that the Hebrew has 70 and the Greek translation has 72. Hmm. And so then depending on which one of those you're using, you're either going to use 70 or 72. And you're like, well, why, why do they differ? Well, because the Hebrew is a lot older. Okay. Hmm. And uh, as the sort of Greco-Roman period comes about and it's translated into Greek, by that point, some of the nations had moved. Okay. They had moved around. Hmm. Some of them had split. Okay. You don't have exactly like the names all get updated. Uh-huh. Okay. And as they all get updated, um, the sometimes like one, some of the nations no longer exist and uh-huh. some of them have now split into other nations or sure. whatever. And so just to kind of keep everybody straight, we, we name updated names of everybody and, uh-huh. and that results in 72. Really? And so then as huh. you, when the new Testament writers, when they pick up on the Babel story or the table of nations story, depending on whether they're using the Hebrew or the Greek, 
Okay, mm-hmm. they're going to use 70 or 72. So, for example, in Luke 10, um, where Jesus sends out his disciples, some manuscripts say that he sent out 70, mm-hmm. and some manuscripts say that he sent out 72. Mm-hmm. And the reason for the difference is that the the scribes, the New Testament scribes, they're wanting to preserve this connection mm. in the story. They want this hyperlink. They want you to see this hyperlink. Yeah. And so they they the and the different communities, some of them are reading from the Septuagint in their Old Testament, okay. and some of them are reading from the Hebrew in an effort to preserve this connection. Sometimes we'll say seventy, and sometimes we'll say seventy-two. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because some are trying to give the more sort of the updated number. Yeah. But then other scribes are going, no, 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 this is a hyperlink to the 70, and we don't want people to miss it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so in an effort cool. not to miss that that hyperlink, we kind of have to then ask, okay, if Jesus is sending out 70, and this this actually corresponds intentionally to the 70 sons of Jacob and those mm-hmm. 70 elders mm-hmm. too, because Israel's purpose was to bring blessing to the whole nations. That's yes. actually why there's 70 elders. That's why there's mm-hmm. 70 sons of Jacob. That's why Jesus sends out the 70. Mm-hmm. But what then, like, like, why does this happen now in Luke? For example, mm-hmm. Luke 10, why is Jesus doing this now? And yeah. why is the report that, hmm, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is like, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. I've given you all authority. Uh-huh. What's what's kind of going on with with this language um, and this seeming shift in authority? Why is, like, like traditionally when we think about the Old Testament, most of the relationship between Israel and the nations is stay away. <laughs> like, uh-huh. like, don't touch, you know, mm-hmm. kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And there really isn't this sense of going out to all the nations. There's the mm-hmm. sense of the nations will kind of come in and bring blessing. All the nations will stream to Zion, for right. example, is kind of what the prophets talk about. And you will maybe get once in a while a prophet kind of like going out, like maybe you think about Jonah going to Nineveh, that uh-huh. kind of a thing. But But by and large, the, the the picture in the Old Testament is not one of going out. Mm-hmm. But then you read Acts and mm-hmm. the whole thing starts off with, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has mm-hmm. come and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's mm-hmm. it's very much the opposite. It's this going out thing. Mm-hmm. And so, sure. and, and, and even historically, Luke and Acts is associated with the Pauline traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and Paul quite famous is, is, is famous for wanting to get to the very edge of the Roman empire Mm -hmm. in, in this commitment to get all the way to Spain, which is this whole point in even writing the letter of Romans, for example. Mm -hmm. And so if if we're, if we're going to summarize, I guess, then what, what all this means, there's a couple significant points. As we read acts two, one through 12, we're supposed to see this connection to Sinai, Mm -hmm. that God is dwelling with his people. And that's why there's this language of fire and tongues and temple. Mm -hmm. But that leads to a natural question, which people, who are the people? Mm. If the point is this sort of Sinai of God dwelling with his people, who are his people? And that's where the Babel connection comes in. Mm -hmm. And it's this idea that God is reunifying and Mm -hmm. reclaiming the nations and that's why there's this this image that's why the nations are listed for one yeah. but then that's why there's this imagery of wind and confusion yeah. there as well just like in the bible too. yeah and so so mm-hmm. something really significant is, is happening that in jesus's death and resurrection something really profound has changed as it relates to yahweh and mm-hmm. the nations because when we read deuteronomy moses says 
Um, this is Deuteronomy 4, verses 19 through 20. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and you bow down to them and mm. you serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the heavens. Mm. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance as it is to this day. So in Deuteronomy 4, there's this contrast. Mm. Israel is Yahweh's people and the nations aren't his. Mm-hmm. Okay? The Lord has allotted to all the peoples under heaven this, these other ones that they bow down to. Mm-hmm. But then there's this marked difference in Acts, where Paul says, for example, in Acts 14, that in past generations, he, that is Yahweh, allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Mm -hmm. So, So Yahweh was at work still. He was still bringing good things, mm-hmm. but there's these past generations where the nations are allowed to walk in their, their own ways. And in Acts 17, he flushes that comment out a little bit more. And he says uh, in uh, Acts 17, verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine, th- the divine being is like gold or silver mm-hmm. or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Then verse 30, this is the key. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now mm. something's changed. Okay, So before the nations were allowed to walk in their own ways, like mm. Moses said, they had been allotted a different kind of place. Right. But now something has changed. And Yahweh commands all people everywhere to repent Mm -hmm. because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given full assurance to Mm -hmm. all by raising him from the dead. And so something has shifted in terms of the, uh, uh, in terms of who rules the nations. Jesus does now. Mm -hmm. And this, and so, so, so Paul then says that, He's calling all people everywhere to swear allegiance to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Now that, of course, leaves a really interesting question about who (laughs) ruled the nations before. Uh And that's something we'll probably have to talk about on another podcast. (laughs) That's another podcast, right? Yeah. 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 I I think I know what you're pointing to when you say that, and it does require another podcast. But that is an interesting thing when you think about the, um, the posture that, that people had that the Israelites had toward the other nations. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if, um, and I think some of the text you referenced were pointing to this as well. They were almost left to their own devices, mm-hmm. like do as you will. Mm-hmm. But that's but that's changing. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying is that that changed with Jesus, and yes. now now the focus does move outward. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Yep. Yeah. So within Acts two here, which is again the the kickstart to this whole mission, this whole book mm-hmm. is about this expansion to reclaim the nations, right? Mm-hmm. That's why there's this going out constantly all the way to the ends of the earth. Mm-hmm. And that mission changes with Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. Yeah. Something has has changed that has fundamentally shifted the problem that was introduced at Babel mm-hmm. and such that the nations have been reclaimed and Jesus uh-huh. is Lord of the world. He has staked his claim and now he's gathering them up. Yep, that's right. Yeah, to renew all things. Yeah. 
Um, it's fascinating to me all how we these threads that you can pull and that can be pulled through careful study um, to realize okay these things lining up the way that they do this was not a coincidence this is not accidental there's a message as you were saying earlier with the seventy seventy two thing the, the scribes were intentional to make sure no 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 let's make sure we preserve yeah don't miss it yeah we there's there's something really significant here um, and like you said the outcome is out we go mm-hmm. out into the world to to share the truth about Jesus. That's right. Yeah. Well, this is like really illuminating. Um, thank you so much for uh, helping us sort of walk walk through this and have a better a better understanding. Um, it's interesting. My mind went one. I was going to wrap it up, and then my mind went to one more thing. Uh, you, the distinction in Luke chapter ten. It. I've often read Luke chapter ten and thought, well, this reads like a chapter from Acts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now you can sort of see the tension, intentionality of it, especially with the 70 that were mm-hmm. sent out, um, that this is sort of another sort of echo or, or a foretaste of what was coming in the book of Acts on the other side of, on the other side of Pentecost. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. So now as we uh, move into Pentecost Sunday and celebrate um, all that the Lord has done and is now welcoming us to join him in uh, through the coming of his spirit, um, we can understand a bit more about what all is at play here and ultimately it's about God renewing all things yeah absolutely and God his desire to to dwell with his people Uh his people being people from every nation under heaven yes and uh, yeah absolutely and we he dwells with his people because we are we're temples we're the temple of God yeah well I love it thank you so much I really appreciate it and uh, it's good to have a little bit more insight heading into this Sunday thank you Aaron All right, thanks man